Welcome to WTTSN Conversation, supported by Technology Recyclers. I'm Matt Pelser. Every other Monday, we share current interviews with the artists of today, as well as three decades of exclusive WTTS interviews. And this time, it's a recent talk I had with Dave Perner of Soul Asylum. He talked about how his band navigated the pandemic, having put out their 12th studio album just before lockdown started. He reflected on the impact of their biggest song, Runaway Train, and recalled getting a request from another Minneapolis musician who wanted to record one of his songs. So, Michael Bland, my drummer, who also played with Prince, called me one night and he said, I'm sitting out in Paisley Park and Prince wants to cover Stand Up and Be Strong and he wanted your blessing. <laughs> and I said, well, I'd be honored. And now, WTTS In Conversation with Dave Perner of Soul Asylum. Oh, man. Hey, Dave Perner. How's it going, man? Not too bad. How are you? I heard you got a cold. I'm getting over a cold myself. Oh, right on. It's just going around, man. Um, yeah, I just got a, another Q-tip jammed up my nose. <laughs> yeah, I had one of those earlier this week. They're doing that for uh, for shows. I don't know if you've... Um, run into that protocol at venues or not doing the rapid tests and stuff but i had to do that on tuesday for the same reason yeah it's kind of crazy yeah well it sounds like you're coming out of it how you feeling about the shows you've done so far so far so good i mean uh we kind of had to move outdoors as much as possible it's been a god a year since we got canceled in san diego due to the covid yeah or san diego i should say um <laughs> Uh, but anyways, it, w it was good to be back out and I'd sort of forgotten a little bit about how it goes. And now I'm kind of like, oh, right, that's how it goes. So the first show was a little, mm, the second show got a little better and the third show got a little better. I mean, there's been people, there'd probably be more people. Some people have masks. The outdoor shows, of course, seem a little more comfortable or something because people can get i don't know more space between them or whatever i it's it's strange but well, i mean it's good what you've been going through is i mean it's kind of unique for you guys because i mean i don't know what was the longest break that you ever took not doing any shows before that this? was it that was it i mean that that's got to be it um yeah and you were all ready to do it. I mean, yeah. you had you had just the put the longest out... break we've taken since 1983. <laughs> <laughs> it's the very beginning. I mean, you had just put out "Hurry Up and Wait," and you put it out mm -hmm. just weeks after the onset of the pandemic. And you know, I don't know, maybe thinking it wouldn't be what it turned into. I guess from talking to other artists who are more up and coming than you guys are. I mean, you guys are established. You've been around for uh, a good while and you're still doing the thing, but other artists were kind of freaking out, you know, wondering whether or not music would ever be the same, whether live shows would ever be the same. I want to get your perspective. Your perspective is a little colored in this way in that you had just put out an album. You were going to do the thing where you put out the album, you tour on it. Right. And I don't know, where was your where was your head at thinking, is this ever going to change? Or were you okay with the fact that music might never be the same again? <laughs> uh, well, I definitely was not okay with anything being as screwed up as it is now 
when we played Los Angeles and that was our last gig and we had a good gig. Thank God for that. I mean, because if it would have sucked, I would have had to live with it for the last year, you know. So I don't really have anything to compare it to, but I don't know. I don't think it's healthy for anybody to not be able to congregate or get together or, you know, hear some live music. All that stuff is never been threatened quite like this before and uh you know it's concerning to say the least i don't see a definite end in sight and that's what's so frustrating is that you're kind of trying to navigate your way through this thing where nobody really has any solid answers so everyone's kind of speculating and guessing and operating under various guises of paranoia which just makes people more kind of suspect of other people and it i mean it's really good to be out there again and see that people still have some sort of spirit in the in the whole thing and i I really do hope that you know it's not going to be this way forever um well you and me both so if we look at what happened with pandemic and you hear all these obnoxious people who are like, I used the time, I got creative and all this, but you guys, I mean, you put out, you had been creative up to the onset. You had been putting together, hurry up and wait. And then you put it out. Um, did you feel any pressure to continue to be creative or to be productive in some way? Or, I mean, were you at a point where you were like, all right, no, we've done the work. We're ready to go out there and do the other work. Yeah, it was pretty much the latter. I mean, I put a book out and, you know, things were kind of building up to let's, let's go out and do it. It was just sort of stunning to, just stop be stopped in your tracks like that we all felt kind of incomplete we only had like five shows left to do on a tour that had gone really well as far as i'm concerned so i mean to me it was not super inspiring you know i started feeling like i was in an old folks home walking around in slippers and sweatpants all the time (laughs) just kind of like not knowing what to do with myself but me and Ryan managed to do a once a week thing where we got we played a hundred original songs and we did some streaming and the band streamed a thing from a studio and we streamed a thing from First Avenue. Did the Friday and thing, we yeah. Tried to make do with that, which was a different experience. I mean, it's a bit of a joke to play to a camera, especially when you're playing in front of a live audience and everyone's holding up a camera anyways. Um, so this was just the camera. So to that degree, it was informal in a way that it's fun. There's no pressure when you're sitting around the living room jamming with your friends, you know. But, uh, yeah, it kind of sucked. It didn't really. <laughs> yeah. I got some I got some painting and some writing done and a few. Actually, we kind of got pretty far into making a new record so to that degree it was very creative as far as sort of using our home studios and using the practice space and staying in our little pod or whatever the five of us really sort of taking the reins 
as as they say, the inmates had pretty much occupied the asylum at that point and were making a record all by ourselves, which is pretty impressive to me, considering that we started out with zero knowledge of any of this stuff at all. And now the band is like everyone's got their own home studio and everyone knows how to record the band and everyone kind of can do all this stuff without anybody else's help. So there was a little bit of deflation there for me when I was, you know, we're like, okay, now we're going to go on tour. And I was like, oh, well, there goes all the air out of the record that we are still currently working on. But yeah, you know, you try to make the best of it, I suppose, but it's not terribly inspiring to be quarantined, you know, as far as I'm concerned. I'm I'm curious about that whole home studio versus regular studio thing. I mean, you've been at it for a long time, uh, and so I'm sure that you're comfortable in a recording studio now, but the dynamics got to be a lot different when you're just with the guys and using your own equipment. Is the pressure off in a way, or is there much of a difference? Uh, yes, the pressure is off, and the the factor that is gone is the time is money factor. Yeah. So if you're in a studio and you're spending fifteen hundred bucks a day or whatever, you you know you, there's a certain just anxiety going on to get it right and to do it and do it and do it until it's right and this that and the other thing. And uh, in this situation where you're on your own time you don't have that pressure and you also have the ability to sort of go wow that mistake actually sounds kind of cool <laughs> or just weird little things like that that you probably would gloss over if if you were on a real tight schedule and you did hurry up and wait at what the same studio where you did made to be broken is that right that is correct. Yeah. What was that? I mean, what was there something that went into that decision? Was it that specifically, or was it just coincidence? No, it's all completely happenstance. Really? I've been working with John Fields, who's a producer, who is a friend, first and foremost. And we would fly out to L.A. and work with John. And then John moved back to Minneapolis, which was convenient for us, and... You got a room at the stu- at, yeah in the studio where we recorded those early twin tone records, and that was just kind of a full circle thing. So it was really pretty cool in a way to be in that same room and feel that comfort. And the strange part is walking outside and seeing that every storefront has changed and everything else has changed, but we're still here. <laughs> did any of that feeling um do, do you feel like any of that feeling made its way on to hurry up and wait or was it just kind of a headspace that it put you in to kind of uh, affect the performance yeah i mean i'm sure it does in a subliminal sort of way that i can't really sort out but i mean as we were doing one of the live streams from that room uh we played at least one song from those records and I, it was very sort of deja vu kind of experience and it was kind of cool i liked it i was like oh, all right you know i'm not somewhere in la or new york and under pressure and all that kind of stuff it was kind of like being home again i suppose you know i spent 20 years in new orleans and 
it was it was a good feeling it, it was it was not like i haven't gotten anywhere it was more like i'm home again We'll be right back with more of my interview with Dave Perner on WTTS In Conversation with support from Technology Recyclers. What happens to your obsolete electronics? It's estimated that only 18% of all electronic waste is properly recycled globally. This harms the environment, wastes natural resources, and pollutes our landfills. You should be recycling your computers and electronics. Technology Recyclers has the solution. With their R2 certification, they guarantee 100% data destruction. Their state-of-the-art shredding and separation system ensures nothing ends up in landfills. They're Hoosier veteran-owned and always free to you and your company. Visit Technology Recyclers on the web. We now return to WTTS In Conversation with Dave Perner. That remake in 2019 of Runaway Train that uh, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children did, it gave that song a lift um, in a way that I don't know, it was very poignant. You feel the Soul Asylum version when you hear it, but when you hear that, it's like this sort of tribute to this song that has meant so much, not to just people who like the music itself, but people who liked the message that followed. What did you think when that happened? Well, as far as the cause goes, I felt great. Uh, I was just like, oh, this is a cause that I'm very um, involved with, for lack of a better expression. I, I learned a lot just being involved with the missing and exploited children situation and, you know, really getting it under my skin where, God, there's such a, you know, I didn't have a kid when I wrote that song. Uh, so it, it keeps kind of getting, you know, every time there's an amber alert, I, it just sort of comes up in my brain. Like then having a kid was just like, you are kind of looking over your kid's shoulder all the time. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of creeps out there, and uh, it's a scary situation. And I can't imagine anything worse for a parent to have to go through. So just to sort of see that is is interesting in itself, or positive, if you will. As far as interpretation goes, it's really interesting to me because I, I mean, a lot of living in new orleans for 20 years was kind of understanding what a standard is and what a timeless song is and seeing all these different jazz bands you know you can go out and a night and hear four different bands interpret my funny valentine or something and each band sounds completely different but it's the same tune and so now prince has a song that I wrote on his newest record and it's it's a bit shocking at first but then it's like really cool to have my material interpreted by someone else and it, it, a lot of it is production and a lot of it is just trying to keep up with the aesthetic of the times and and this that and the other thing but you know I can hear it all now you know, I go, oh, wow, they processed the drums that way. That's interesting. Oh, they didn't have that effect when I recorded this song for the first time or this, that, and the other thing. There's, a, there's just this kind of how aural, I guess, is kind of the word sensibility that, I, to, to me, does it sound more modern? I mean, yeah, I guess so. But uh, does it get the song across 
better or different or really like, I don't know. It's still pretty much the same tune. So yeah, I'm I'm into it. I love it when people reinterpret my material. Yeah, and Prince was just one of those people who was just constantly working. He was in the studio all the time and was doing all kinds of things. That song that you did, I mean, did you have any part of that? Uh, or did he get a hold of it and do it, and then it just came out of the vault? What's the story there? I'm intrigued. Well, he had heard it, and I, you know, I've run into him on numerous occasions. You know, it was like seeing him in the hallway of, paisley park and saying hello or seeing him at a show and saying hello he was always very nice to me i I, it had not occurred to me that he had listened to my music but minneapolis is not that big of a town you know so michael bland my drummer who also played with prince called me one night and he said i'm sitting out in paisley park and prince wants to cover stand up and be strong and he wanted your blessing (laughs) <laughs> and I said, well, I'm, I'd be honored, you know, and it was just, it was nice because he didn't have to ask, you know, you can, Weird Al Yankovic didn't ask me for permission to do one of my songs, so <laughs> yeah, I remember you don't have to, so he, he wanted, he wanted that from me, which I thought was very sweet, and then it just went into the vault, and I was pretty positive that it would never see the light of day so i was as surprised as anyone when it actually materialized uh the weird al thing what was that what was it that he did he um i've got it i've got it somewhere here in my he did misery he did the syndicated incorporated song misery i don't know what did you think of that since he didn't ask permission he's been known to ask permission from some people but not others what what did you think the the record was called god what was it called Amish Paradise or something. Bad Hair Day was was his record, yeah. Okay, and he's rocking the Coolio hair, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, I heard I had heard that Coolio was not happy about it. No, and uh, I talked to people that uh, the first time they ever heard the song Misery was Weird Al's version, so that turned them on to Soul Asylum. So to that effect, it's pretty nice. Um, and I, you know, I got no problem with with what Weird Al does. I think it's pretty funny. But music is supposed to be fun, you know. When you when you had your son, and you know, you took time off and and everything. I mean, I don't know what your situation was or is or anything. And I'm not sure how old he is. We don't need to get into it. But when that happened, did some of the songs, and not just Runaway Train, but did some of the songs take on a new meaning? I mean, Fatherhood transformed me in a huge and profound way. Did it do the same for you, and did it make it into your music or your performance? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's references to it in, in a lot of the songs since then. And I think as Eli was turning from an infant to a toddler, my dearest, bestest friend and bandmate, Carl, was dying. Yeah. So that whole aspect was profound in a way that I can't even explain it. But, you know, and then later on, he was just a, uh, three or four, and he would start singing one of my songs, and that, that was profound. I, I mean, you know, I have a video of him doing Stand Up and Be Strong, which... 
we're going to put it out there. <laughs> he gave me he gave me permission, so I had to ask my son, who is now eighteen, for permission, and uh, I was very thankful that he said yes because he could have said no, and I'd been like, "Yeah, oh, that's a bummer." But you know, he's three in this video, and he's kind of lip syncing to the song, and it's it's adorable. <laughs> um, so I don't know; it should be out there sometime soon if it's not already would um do you think carl would still be playing bass it's been what 16 years now would he still be in the band absolutely yeah. i mean he was a anchor and a founder and a asset in in every kind of way i mean he, he was he never pretended to be a virtuoso and he always was pretty much game for anything and he always had a great attitude. And, you know, <laughs> there's not very many people that I have ever met that have that demeanor. So, and, you know, he loved it. So yeah. that's what, yes, he would definitely still be in the band, yes. Um, I got one more question, and I'll let you go. So, I mean, you're you're the last original member. Obviously, you got a good thing going with everybody else in the band, and you guys still sound fantastic. But uh, my guess is that you're the boss, and so you pick the guys. What do you look for in a bandmate? Obviously, you don't bring them into the room unless you know they can handle the music. What do you want from them in addition to that? Well, I got it, you know. Yeah. I mean, there was a few sort of... I don't know what you would call that, but there, you know, there's personalities that just they don't mix, and then there's playing that is just here or there or nor there. But the demeanor of the people in the band now is perfect. You know, it's a positive attitude is so important. Just wanting to be there, I think, is is a huge deal, and auditioning people for the band is, is something that I never could have imagined when we started off, but I probably auditioned, you know, a hundred musicians or at least you, you can kind of tell when somebody kind of gets it, you know, and you can kind of tell how much work they put into their audition. And that's a pretty good indicator of how seriously they're willing to take it. So it is that combination of, of musicality and personality that um, really fits the, the puzzle pieces together. Dave Perner, Soul Asylum, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, man. I appreciate your time, man. This has been WTTS In Conversation with support from Technology Recyclers. Subscribe to this podcast and find more information at WTTSFM.com. I'm Matt Pelser. Thanks for listening.